Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Consulting. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Mr. Speaker. Well, there is no speaker, but there is a faithful host, and I am it, Dean Hinkson, as the nice man said. Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G, three branches of government, as we all know, and of all the government's myriad agencies, courts, and offices, it is Larry, Moe, and Curly, right? (laughs) One, two, three. It's the House of Representatives, Bruce, that's closest to the passions of the people, Ah. as the founders intended. Uh, But those passions boiled over this week. You know, we woke up Monday morning uh, relieved at dodging a government shutdown, and then eight Republican congressmen voted with all 208 Democrats to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the first speaker defeated on the floor in American history. Uh, Congressman Patrick McHenry serves as an acting speaker until a new one is elected. But where does that leave appropriations? Where does it leave Uh, Defense Department authorization, all the pending business of the 118th Congress. And what does it mean for the year ahead? I need help to break that all down, Bruce. So I'm glad you're here because in addition to being the guy whose name is on the walls and the stationery and the paychecks around this place, uh, your name is also on the quarterly slide deck, which we have a new one out here in the past week. Uh, that answers 12 questions for the next 13 months. And with our good pal, David Thomas, uh, maybe this is not the worst week for DT to be under the weather, and we wish him a speedy recovery. But with DT out, we're going to take a look at the slide deck. But of course, we cannot look at what happens over the next year and what 2024 has in store without trying to understand what the next few weeks are going to look like up on the hill. Bruce Melman. Welcome to 14th and G. Great to be here. Uh, Wishing DT a speedy recovery and reserving for him the right for a pod rebuttal cast. We will cut again next week and we will cover 2023 in 23 minutes. But let's get to the business at hand because uh, everything, there's a little bit of a pause, though not as much of a pause uh, as folks might think. Uh, Let's just talk about the state of the House and we can get into what happened But unlike at the beginning of the Congress, when the House had no rules, with no elected leadership, no chairman, we're in a much different position uh, while while the House Republicans gear up to elect a new speaker. Chairmen have gavels. The rules are in place. Everything, it seems, except but the business on the floor will continue. So the appropriations, uh, the the appropriations process, at least on the committee level, is 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 likely to move forward. It all still moves forward on the Senate side. Uh, the same with NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, and sort of pre-conferencing that between committees. But Bruce, what do you think? How do you see it? What what did what happened? What happened this week? I love your. Uh, that's very Kevin Bacon Animal House uh, approach to you know remain calm, all is well. You know, nothing to see here, folks. Move along. (laughs) Look, a conference divided against itself cannot stand. And when it took 15 ballots and concessions to all of the most fringe elements of the Freedom Caucus for Kevin to get the gavel, you know, we queued up the Liz Trust head of lettuce. Now, happily, we beat the head of lettuce this time. McCarthy 
survived longer and cut deals, and particularly importantly on the debt ceiling, that a lot of folks doubted he could pull off. I believe he lasted 32 Scaramucci's. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, so, but, but, you know, but in doing so, part of it was just say what you got to say, cut the deal you got to cut, live to fight another day. I don't know that I'd say he could have played it differently. He had pretty horrible cards, but at the same time, as we saw over time, he built up uh, people who were either uh, distrustful or enemies. And whether that's Matt Gates and authorizing the ethics investigation or Nancy Mace and not bringing forward um, opportunities to reassert Roe or Ken Buck and not having uh, the gavel at the antitrust subcommittee. I mean, you know, there's when you have no room for errors, even small things uh, can add up pretty quick. Um, and of course, Democrats had no trust in in, uh, in the speaker. Now, you and I know, and it's they've decided they'll do better with uh, the unknown in door number three. I'll be interested uh, if a year from now, I don't think they'll be uh, talking about Speaker McCarthy the way they talk about Mitt Romney, but they thought Mitt Romney was waging a war on women in 2012. And today they think he's a paragon of virtue. Well, I, I say, Bruce, you know, I, I do caution and, and spent some time yesterday cautioning clients who said, well, the, you know, the House position on appropriations is is going to be uh, blunted or delayed. And look, we're in for some very high drama uh, over the next week. You not only have you not only have members pushing, obviously, uh, current Majority Leader Steve Scalise is one of the candidates for the speakership. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan is one of the candidates. Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma may get in. And you've even got some members pushing former President Trump. But I guess my point is, and my caution to the clients we work with is don't sleep on the House. Uh, because, uh, you know, there, there, there will be business. The staff will still be taking meetings. Members will still be taking meetings. There, there will be business getting done. And there's a non-zero. Look, I, I see a scenario. We got a 45-day extension on government funding with the continuing resolution. Two votes preceding the speaker's vote uh, the other day were setting up, uh, we're teeing up House appropriations bills. There's a scenario here uh, where the House actually has a hard position of bills passed uh, on appropriations and and the Senate's the one that's having trouble uh, getting theirs across the floor. You're, you're of course right. And that's a lesson we've seen over hell the 20 years of this firm. So much work is getting done behind the scenes. I mean, ultimately when tax reform uh, passed under President Trump, it had many elements from the McCrary bill, from the camp draft, from uh, you know stuff Mr. Brady was working on and the folks who get engaged and stay engaged Likewise, the IRA was many years worth of items that, you know, the planets get aligned and it's time to move. So without a doubt, the appropriators are and continue and will continue to work on their specific bills. Um, and it's very easy to chase the shiny object and to think because of all the drama up top, nobody's doing anything anywhere. They're talking a lot about AI. They're talking a lot about China and what a next China bill might be. Um, there's recognition that we've got to do better on cybersecurity. There's worries about you know, deep fakes and and uh, and the election and election speech. Um, most members we know ran for the right reasons, want to get stuff done, are frustrated with the chaos. Um, but the media uh, is playing for clicks and and uh, and uh, they're in a competitive business. So it's all drama all the time. Yeah. I, you know, you talk to you talk to a lot of House members and, and staff and the feel up there. Look, I, I don't think there was a ton of love lost with uh, with Speaker McCarthy 
from a lot of members. Uh, there was, you know, there were frustrations as there are, you can't lead a chamber of 435 egos and, and not rub some the wrong way. All, no leader is universally loved. I think the vast majority, you only had, it only took eight Republicans voting with all the Democrats and the vast majority, even those who looked askance at a lot of the things uh, McCarthy did in the speakership, saw this and see this as a complete distraction uh, of having to now change horses here, literally in the midstream of the 118th Congress. Now, I know I take some hope in um, when Mr. Boehner, who had had 25 members uh, vote against him becoming speaker, when he retired after the Pope's visit, um, the uh, I think the conference recognized that divided is not a good look. It's going to hurt us in the elections. It's going to hurt our presidential candidate. Uh, let's get it together and we may grumble, but let's not necessarily have to do this again. Um, we'll see, of course, who they pick. But uh, my, if I had to bet, like you, I'm betting they're going to try to both pick some combination of people and processes to not have another motion to vacate, to not go back and do this again, um, because uh, ultimately they're, they're all political animals and this is not it's not good for the brand. Well, Bruce, as I noted at the top, uh, you did put out the quarterly slide deck here in the last week, a dozen questions for the next 13 months. Uh, one of those questions was not whether Speaker McCarthy would outlast the head of lettuce, uh, but the House elections uh, was was certainly on the list. So let's, let's save the gaming out of the Speaker's election for next week when uh, we have a little more uh, definitive picture of what it looks like, but uh, let's let's take that question on deck. And what does this mean for House elections in in twenty twenty four? Well, the theme of the new slide deck is possibilities and probabilities, and so looking across those dozen issues uh, that are relevant for the next thirteen months, one was can the Republicans hold the House? Uh, it's possible because uh, for the last every in every presidential election. The party that entered that election holding the House held the House back to 1952. It's a pretty good long streak and string. Republicans take some hope that presidentials typically aren't when control of the House changes. However, when you look at the probabilities, we decided it's too close to call. There are 18 Republicans in seats, districts that were won by Joe Biden. There are only five uh, Democrats in Trump seats. Uh, the issue of abortion again and again in these suburban swing districts has been um, favorable to the Roe v. Wade side and not favorable to the Dobbs side. So that has helped Democrats uh, up and down the ballot. Um, several redistricted maps that were super advantageous for Republicans, in particular New York, but also Florida, Alabama, um, were uh, kicked out by the Supreme Court for failing under the Voting Rights Act. And the new districts will help Democrats gain seats, probably get to at least parity just by the redrawing alone. Uh, shutdowns have never been dispositive, but when the Democrats, as they did in 2022, the central narrative is Republicans are extremists. If Republicans are spending all of their time shooting other Republicans for not being extreme enough, that is uh, unhelpful. You know, an impeachment, it sort of depends on the merits of a case, but we haven't yet seen the merits. Some of this feels like an effort to find the facts. And so that could be a challenge. The advantage for the Republicans, people are really upset about the border and about the lack of control on the border. And that includes yep. Democratic mayors yep. in cities like um, uh, Chicago and New York. Uh, people are upset about crime. People are upset about uh, price inflation, including in particularly gas and homes. And people are upset that 
it feels like the Dems are more beholden to the teachers unions uh, than to parents uh, when it comes to K-12 education. The R's have issued tailwinds if they could just stop uh, amplifying the headwinds. Well, and we're seeing those uh, here in our area. State of Virginia is having, I'm sorry, the Commonwealth of Virginia is having their state legislative elections this year. And we're getting a lot of those ads uh, on TV and their, their, their crime, border, and education control on one side, and it's uh, it's Roe v. Wade and, and right to choose on the other. Uh, you're seeing a ton of that right now. The question is, how do Democrats capitalize uh, on this on this chaos in in Republican House leadership? And their initial tack here in the early days has been tyranny of the minority. Now, maybe that's just another version of saying extremists are in control of the Republican Party, but that's that strikes me as sort of an interesting tack because that also plays into the redistricting argument. And maybe it's a simpler way to say uh, the tail's wagging the dog here when it comes to Republicans. Well, certainly, look, it's it's the, the decision to let the Republicans, you know, house burn down because they, they set it on fire themselves is, is understandable politically. Of course, there are possible downstream risks, such as uh, does this trigger a recession? That's bad for Joe Biden holding the White House. And if ultimately a recession helps Donald Trump come back, there may be some second guessing about maybe, you know, maybe we should have, uh, you know, notwithstanding the fact that they were bad partners, maybe we should have not made it quite so difficult for the Republicans in the House to not give everything to the right wing of the right wing. Um, I think a shutdown is more likely in the short term. I think Ukraine funding is less likely in the short term. And I don't think the Democratic Party wants either of those things. You know, but again, if if the central argument that you think will have you pick up the House and win the, the uh, White House or hold the White House, which are also the central arguments of picking up the White House in 2020 and holding the Senate in 2022, is the other side is too extreme to govern, you know, uh, a, uh, a shutdown precipitated by uh, Republicans unable to go along with the uh, choice of 96% of them feels like political tailwind, at least narrowly. We live in a town, work in a town full of Cassandras. Uh, the sky is always falling. Uh, this is not irrecoverable for the Republicans. I mean, they will, I, I, I feel pretty confident, if not next week, uh, the week after, there's going to be a new speaker in place. Uh, the agenda, I think, largely remains the same for, for House Republicans in the majority there. Uh, and, you know, I, I think a lot of this sort of drama is going to be forgotten, uh, largely forgotten by the electorate by the time we get to November. I mean, it feels like we're already living the election, but by the time we get to November of 2024, of course, there is another chamber up for grabs, and it's definitely up for grabs, the United States Senate. The Democrats have a 51-seat majority there. There are really no vulnerable uh, incumbent Republican senators uh, up for up for reelection. I don't think there are any uh, any open seats uh, on the Republican side in the Senate, but there are a lot of pickup opportunities for Republicans. And, you know, top of the list is West Virginia. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin still hasn't said what he'll do. Uh, who in the hell knows what's going to happen in Arizona, where uh, Senator Cinema has not announced her intentions, but she's already got a, a challenger in the in the Democratic primary there. Pennsylvania, Ohio, states where and look the poll the early this a slew of polling out uh, at least on the presidential, but you know these states are are looking really good for Republican candidates, particularly those Rust Belt states like Pennsylvania and Ohio. 
which were sort of the bedrock of, of Trump being able to be elected in 2016. Look, you're the Senate expert. I agree with that analysis. Seals like feels like the Dems have lost West Virginia. That would make it 50-50. Um, Arizona, if it's a three-way race, would allow a 40% uh, Republican uh, plurality victory. You know, I don't sleep on New Jersey. We'll see how the Dems are, are going to decide to play with uh, Mr. Menendez and where he stands or rots, as the case may be, uh, by the uh, by November of 2024. Um, but, uh, you know, the Dems, to be fair to them, have are bringing some pretty uh, tested and trusted incumbents. You know, uh, we'll see who the Republicans put up in Ohio, but Sherrod Brown's going to be tough. He's he's won a lot of elections despite it being a Trump state. It seems mathematically the Dems shouldn't be able to hold Montana, but if they do, it'll be because because Tester is pretty good in Montana. You know, that said, it's all about avoiding candidate recruitment disasters. Dave McCormick would have beat would have won in Pennsylvania by 10 yep. points against now Senator Fetterman. Yep. But instead, they picked New Jersey resident and crudite uh, aficionado Doc Oz, and he couldn't pull it down. If, uh, you know, if we put up like Mike Lindell in Ohio. Well, that's just not going to be a race. And <laughs> uh, and, and you know, as we're seeing that there is a uh, in the the way primary elections are run, uh, the it, it allows for the most. Uh, ideological and extreme elements to more to, to outperform in a primary, and then you set yourself up for a loss. So I haven't heard of Herschel Walker uh, moving to uh, to uh, Wisconsin or, or Michigan to run. I hope he does not, um, because I don't think that would go well. Well, I was with uh, I was with Senator Daines the other day, the the current chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, uh, the NRSC. They're they're in charge of getting. Uh, Republicans elected over on the Senate side feels really good about candidate recruitment. And I think uh, it's 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 been obvious uh, the difference from the prior administration of the NRSC that they're taking this candidate recruitment question really seriously. I mean, you know, look, you go back to 2010, Leader McConnell learned that lesson uh, very quickly, got involved in the recruitment process uh, and, and really avoided a lot of those pitfalls up until the last cycle where you know, that that hands off approach uh, when you're talking about ex extremist nominees uh, just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, and, I, and I hope they've I hope they've learned that lesson. I mentioned the polling. There's been a slew of polling. And speaking of Cassandra's and hand wringing, a number of mainstream uh, legitimate polls. We're talking CBS, Washington Post, NBC, Wall Street Journal have got the presidential race at least tied. Uh, one poll, I think it was the CBS poll, had uh, had President Trump up by 10 points. You know, these are national polls. ABC. ABC. Thanks, Bruce. But the, the state polls looking at Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, you know, in particular, are not looking much better uh, for President Biden. He's got an age issue. He's got an economy issue. Man, despite the president, uh, it's like former President Trump uh, being in the news every day, sitting in a courtroom. It doesn't seem to be having much impact on his ability to outpoll uh, the incumbent President Biden. Well, first, uh, neither you nor I put so much stock in uh, year out polls. They had Obama losing pretty bad. Romney was going to win and um, and, and uh, reelected president after reelected president was looking weak in the polls. Part of it is. Um, for decades now, Americans broadly have been unhappy with the direction of the country, unhappy with the sense of where the economy is going. It's a whole different podcast and a whole different conversation. But, you know, you know my theory on this. I think the policies, the parties and the institutions that govern our lives were created in the 20th century 
for the 20th century. People feel fragile, unprotected, and they keep voting for change. So that usually is, is a challenge for an incumbent. What it becomes so often then is can the incumbent make it an election about the other guy? Normally, when it's against the challenger, that's a little bit harder, uh, although many challengers help you out. John Kerry, I'm looking at you, or Mitt Romney, I'm looking at you again, who I do like. In this case, the challenger has a four-year record and a pretty hot, pretty hard ceiling. Um, what our take is, is you know, this election is the referend whom? Because if it's a referendum on Biden, Biden's going to lose. And if a referendum on Trump, Trump's going to lose. And so the way you make it about the other guy is you run an insane volume of negative ads. This is going to be the most negative campaign in American history. 100%. And, that, and that's saying something. And that's saying something. <laughs> Look, I don't put, no, uh, the polls at this stage are not dispositive on who's going to ultimately win the election. But what it what it does is, what it tells you is it blows away, I think, a lot of assumptions Republican and Democrat who thought that Donald Trump could never win another national election. I put myself in that category. I mean, the guy's facing dozens uh, of state and federal indictments. Uh, he's in civil court on on several fronts. Uh, but you know, the the idea that this guy's never gonna never gonna be capable of winning another national election is just not true. This is a real race. Uh, it is going to be close, and like you said, it's going to be decided on who the voters are making their hard judgment on. Well, no, you're right. And one of the, you know, as you know, uh, many slides didn't make the cut for the slide deck, partly because it's already 4,000 slides and that seemed adequate. But a really big one is, <laughs> is it mano a mano or is it, are there third parties of of any consequence or relevance? Um, it, it felt, it, it still feels to me that Biden has a higher ceiling, but a lower floor. If it's mano a mano, Biden may pick up the double disgusted voters right. who would love to vote for a third party. If there are third party, you know, and that would be like a no labels kind of third party. Um, you got Cornell West running as a Green Party member, and at least in the polling to date, younger Democrats and and uh, Democratic voters of color seem to be the least enthused. And so, does that create a uh, a channel for some of those? Um, the weightlifting party may soon nominate uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, and, you know, he also may siphon <laughs> off a little bit of the kind of the uh, vax skeptical Bernie bros who don't love a lot of the Republican populism, but also don't love the kind of uh, you will uh, think right uh, establishment political correctness from the left. I mean, when's the last time you did a shirtless bench press in public, Bruce? No, uh, <laughs> moving along. Strike that question. Strike <laughs> that question. <laughs> hey, let's turn. Look, there, like we said, the, the 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 business of Congress, the business of the administration is continuing apace. And let's distinguish the signal from the noise here. One of the things that has had Congress's attention all year long is artificial intelligence uh, and this sort of AI revolution that we seem to be in the midst of. A number of members have introduced bills, but the Senate in particular uh, has conducted numerous roundtables uh, as we all try to get our arms around what AI is going to mean uh, economically for the government. What's there's a lot of there's a lot of bills circulating out there. There's a lot of uh, there, there's a lot of discussion going on. I don't know that they get to uh, actual legislation in in this year what's the what's the early view of how policymakers are looking at ai well we know uh 
everywhere, U.S., U.S. states, uh, the federal government, the federal agencies, the EU, countries around the world, everybody's taking AI more seriously than, uh, than a lot of new techs that I've seen in a long time. The challenge in part is what I might call muscle memory. If you were to say, how are people going to regulate AI? Since, first of all, most of them don't know what AI is and nobody wants to hurt the good stuff because we it's hear this a series good stuff. of tubes. <laughs> right. The best predictor in my mind at the outset is, well, how have they been regulating the internet over the last two decades? That gives you the sense of the muscle memory and that gives you the sense of where things will go. So start with the EU. Their goal on internet regulation has been to protect people, which has meant they've been pretty heavy in regulating. So the GDPR, the DMA, DSA, look for the AI Act coming. The impact has been they protect older industries, but there's a lot fewer startups, less innovation. Um, and tech diffuses more slowly, uh, but they have consumer protection. In the U.S., our goal has been to empower people. So it's been very light touch regulation, almost not at the federal level. Leave it to the states. Let NIST put voluntary standards or maybe encourage industry self-regulation. And you're seeing AI with the White House discussions already heading in that direction. You know, NIST is doing stuff. Uh, the, there's uh, industry uh, proposed standards. The White House is encouraging people to other people to embrace. That's meant disruptors have had a great lane to to dominate and to uh, uh, upend old ways of doing things. But it's meant we don't have much consumer protection. There's no federal privacy law yet. You know, there's a debate about content moderation that has left that kind of stuck. The good news is new voices are elevated. The bad news is some of those voices are disinformation, misinformation, or downright hate, and that's bad. In China, where they're also looking at AI, the goal has always been state party control. As a result, it's what well, is good for the state is good for the industry, period, full stop. They're OK with national champions unless, like Jack Ma, they say anything off message like, hey, there's too much regulation. And then the guy disappears for a few months. Um, it's all about preserving and protecting the party. So the societal impact in China, less freedom, social credit scores. It's a surveillance state. Bruce, let me ask it. The, let me ask you this question: What what would you say? I mean, you bring up uh, internet regulation here in the United States. Uh, you think immediately of of data privacy. We've been we've been debating privacy for the better part of two decades. We still do not have a federal data privacy standard. We have lots of uh, state data privacy standards. And, you know, it was the California law was going to be the action forcing event. GDPR, the, the EU law was going to be the action forcing event that was finally going to get Congress off the dime. And we were going to regulate privacy and set some federal standards. Big, the two big questions, federal preemption versus private right of action, uh, have obviously stalled that uh, for such a long time. What do you say to somebody who says, look, I, I'm not engaging on this federal effort uh, because these guys are never going to get. Uh, they're, they're never going to get their act together and put anything substantive in the statute books. Well, you know, ignore uh, the risk of regulation uh, or the opportunity for encouragement at your own peril. Um, it's fair to say that there isn't federal, you know, new privacy legislation. I guess there is HIPAA and, a few, you know, and, and some stuff in financial sectors. Um, but uh one reason there isn't at the federal level is because now California members say California's law needs to be a floor, and that's a non-starter for a lot of the Republican folks. They had a good three-corners effort led by um, uh, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, the chair in House E&C. Yep. Um, maybe that's stuck. 
AI has a little bit more momentum at its back. But remember, the flip side of heavy regulation is ongoing support. And there, the U.S. has led the world. I and mean, we did it with the CHIPS Act and semiconductors recently. But Semitech, if you're old enough to remember that back in the 1980s, uh, we did it with the Human Genome Project. We did it um, again and again uh, you know, with doubling NIH's budget. Um, the U.S. has been the best at encouraging, empower, and supporting. So if your theory is, ah, the U.S. won't regulate it, that's fine. But you may find your competitors have uh, have gotten a leg up. I we also that... know there will 1,000% be an effort to regulate and constrain through federal agencies, the FTC first and foremost, but CFPB, assuming they survive the Supreme Court term, um, uh, and others. And, uh, you know, in DOJ, at least through their merger oversight, FCC, to the extent they can find a hook, you can you can track that, you can engage with those folks, or you can hope you'll win the lawsuit subsequently. Uh, Bruce, I think that's exactly right. Industrial policy is a bit back in vogue now. We're navigating with a number of clients the implementation of the CHIPS Act. Uh, there was a lot of it in the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and and I see more of that coming down coming down the pipe. Well, let's close on someone who does industrial policy really well, and that's the People's Republic of China. Uh, one of the upsides of getting the continuing resolution and keeping the government funded is Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is going to be able to lead a bipartisan delegation of his Senate colleagues to China. They're going to China. This group of uh, this group of high profile senators. Maybe they'll meet with President Xi. I think that's still being worked out. But you know, we've seen a few administration officials go over to China. Uh, is this a thaw? What do we make of all of this sort of rush of government officials uh, to China when they've been more and more uh, a military adversary uh, and, a, and an economic adversary? We'll start with Leader Schumer, who who uh, has been pretty hawkish on China for well over a decade. Very uh, so, hawkish, yes. Right. So I don't think his going to China is a thaw. I think it's kind of the mission from Micron, uh, which has offered to put uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into new uh, investment in China, in, in New York. Uh, but China is, uh, is very much picking on Micron as a target for retaliation because they're unhappy with the broader semiconductor controls that are being put on Chinese companies. And because there are other uh, memory uh, DRAM producers, they can afford to punch uh, uh, Micron in a way they can't afford to punch, say, NVIDIA. Um, and so uh, I think a little bit is uh, Senator Schumer is going over to see if he can help folks who are making a massive investment in his state. So I view that as a little bit more narrow. There is seemingly at the macro level, uh, a bit of uh, of uh, thaw, at least the Treasury Department seems like they would like to uh, be less aggressive than the national security apparatus. They want to try to find um, not exit ramps, but they want to cool it down. They don't want to set ourselves up so that uh, mistakes get made and you know we're, we're too hair trigger into things that would uh, engage a mutually assured depression. The direction is uh, inexorable, I think, which is decoupling in the high tech space, um, de-risking in the finance space, and, and hopefully uh, ongoing uh, engagement in things that don't have any potential uh, for military impact. Um, and so, hopefully, we're still selling them uh, coffees and and movies and 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 things, and they're still selling us things, even if we need to uh, to make it harder to allow them things that accelerate militarily relevant programs. Well, we'll see what all comes of it. Uh, we will see what comes of the speaker election next week. 
Bruce, uh, candidate forums are scheduled for Tuesday, and then a speaker's election right now is set for Wednesday. Uh, what's your over-under? Do they do they elect a speaker on Wednesday? White smoke? I think not, but uh, I've been getting the how's this going to play out wrong over and over and over again. Um, my money says uh, they don't have decision that ultimately the two top lead the candidates uh, Mr. Scalise and Mr. Jordan have lots of support, but as we know, you need 218, and it's with a uh, denominator pretty close to 218. Um, that kind of unanimity may be hard to get. That suggests one of two other outcomes, either a door number three uh, candidate that is acceptable to the partisans for those two guys, or possibly a Scalise speaker, Jordan is majority leader, um, they agree on how to operate and sort of power share going forward. Um, the so-called unity ticket. We'll see. The only question that matters, you go in when you're the majority party, you go into a caucus meeting, just the Republicans, they elect their speaker, and then you're expected to lock arms when you get on the floor and all all 218 vote for the party's chosen speaker's candidate. Will those hardliners stick to the conference vote? Uh, and and elect the speaker that the conference decides on, and and that's that's the question. But we shall see. DT, uh, rest, fluids, Netflix, find a good show, feel better, and we will be back next week to cover all of 2023 in 23 minutes. Bruce Melman, uh, thanks for helping me out here on 14th and G today. Get better, DT. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for listening to today's podcast brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman Consulting. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.